Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Hayley Dance. Hayley is a paratriathlete and she is a dual medalist at the Rio and Tokyo Paralympics. And she's been a triathlete for quite a number of years, I think, even you know, well before it was deemed to be a, an official Paralympic sport. So welcome to the podcast, Hayley. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's fantastic to have you. Your experience is something I'm really interested in tapping into. How long have you been a paratriathlete for now? Uh, we are coming up on 11 years now, which wow. is a wild to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you still look like you're only a baby, so I can't believe Aww. it's 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. I know, it's so funny. I feel like I went from being like the rookie to the veteran on the team, like, overnight and here we are (laughs) (laughs) oh well and you've probably still got at least another two Paralympics in you if not three which means you'll be a veteran veteran (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) well we're taking it four years at a time but but yeah Yeah. in theory in triathlon you can go a long time so yeah yeah awesome Haley, can you tell us a, a bit about your background and how you got into competing in para triathlons Yeah. So I grew up playing able-bodied sports, mostly team sports, and really just loved being active. Sports was a really important part of my identity. Mm. And then when I was 12, I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a form of bone cancer Mm. um, in my left leg, right below my knee. And so I went through a lot of chemotherapy and surgeries to reconstruct my leg and that put my cancer into remission, and it stayed there for the last, ooh, what are we going on now, like 15 years? Mm. Um, so that was great, but my leg never really healed from any of the surgeries, and mm. I had a leg that was essentially useless. So, you know, I was really struggling at this point in time because I was wanting to go back to playing sports, but my mm. leg was really preventing me from doing that. So, you know, I had a few more surgeries over the course of a couple of years. And then when I was 14, I decided that I was just going to be able to do a lot more with a prosthetic. And so Mm -hmm. I decided to have my leg amputated above the knee, really just because I wanted to get a higher quality of life back. So, you know, it ended up being a really great decision for me. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine where I would be had I not made that decision. So, you know, I kind of spent my high school years just dabbling in in different sports, never really found anything that I I really clicked with. And then when I was in college, I started working in adaptive sports just as a, a summer internship. And, you know, adaptive sports was a world that I was vaguely familiar with, but kind of distanced myself from because... I didn't really see myself as being disabled and I wanted to just, mm. you know, do everything that my peers kid. were doing. And so, you know, it was it was a world that I just kind of just hadn't really pursued until college. And, you know, there through that internship and through that work experience, you know, my world was really just opened up to the entire spectrum of parasports that are out there. Mm. I became really good friends with uh, a few triathletes who 
basically told me that I was going to become one of them, even though I had no experience in swimming, biking, or running. But, you know, they kind of just took me under their wing and, and taught me everything there was to know about the sport. They got me set up with all of the resources that I needed. So uh, a prosthetist to make me a running leg. They were able to get me on a, a loner bike. And so I pretty much picked up all three of the comprising sports at the same time at the age of 20. Huh. Yeah, kind of wild. Uh, it's, it's funny because at the time I was like, I don't really know why I'm doing this because I don't really like any of this. <laughs> but I really like <laughs> the, the people and the community and, you know, that aspect of things. And so I kind of just kept showing up to, you know, all these triathlon practices. And then, you know, I finished my first race just a couple months after I picked up sport. And that was really what hooked me in, you know, crossing the finish line and being in that, at, that race atmosphere was really life-changing for me. And I realized then that this was something that I, I wanted to keep doing. So yeah, I kind of just kept training, kept racing. This was, you know, in 2011, which was right when paratriathlon was kind of starting to take off. It had just been announced that we were going to be uh, contended at the Rio Paralympics for the very first time as a Paralympic medal event. And so there was just all this excitement and energy around the sport and around the idea of, you know, making that inaugural Paralympic team. So, um, yeah. you know, I, I dedicated myself to to that goal of, of being on that first team and was fortunate enough to qualify, go to Rio, take on the silver medal in a U.S. podium sweep and loved it so much that I decided to to keep going for, for Tokyo, where I was able to take home the silver medal once again. So yeah, and now here we are. I'm currently based in, in Colorado Springs at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. I'm on the resident team there. So we've got an awesome group of, of athletes that live and train there every day. Mm -hmm. And honestly, now 11 years into it, I love it more than ever. You know, I feel like I've just Good. learned so much over the years. My teammates and all the people that I've met through the sport really keep me going and keep all of the excitement very much alive. Awesome. And so what's your classification in paratriathlon? Yeah. So I am a PTS2. We have four standing categories in paratriathlon. In addition to that, we have category four visually impaired and one for wheelchair. So I'm in the the most impaired standing category that we have as an above knee amputee. Right. Okay. And so what modifications have you got to your bike as a result of do you, do you have a special prosthetic limb that you use for your bike that's different from your running prosthetic? Like, how do you manage that? Yeah. So when I first started in triathlon on the bike, I had a, a, pros a prosthetic that I used that just clipped into the bike. It had a free swinging knee and that worked out pretty well for me. And then uh, I believe it was the year after Rio, so 2017, mm -hmm. I, we kind of started to see a lot of the men in the field start to move over towards single leg cycling. So mm -hmm. no prosthetic and just the sound mm -hmm. leg clipped into the bike. And instead of a prosthetic, we have what's called a stump cup. And so it's basically just a, a prosthetic socket 
that's mounted to the top tube of the bike and uh, the residual limb goes in there just to provide some, some leverage. And so, you know, I kind of started to see some of the field move in that direction. I was really resistant to it just because, you know, my prosthetic was working well for me. I couldn't really wrap my mind around how pedaling with one leg would be better than pedaling with two. Yeah. Yeah. So shockingly it is (laughs) there's a lot of little little nuances that together kind of add up to make a big difference I think for one thing the stump cup allows you to get in a much more aerodynamic position especially on a time trial bike because it's able to give you a pelvic tilt that you can't necessarily get with an above knee prosthetic Mm -hmm. so you're able to get in a much more aggressive position overall it's lighter and so less rotating weight. Yep. It has actually improved my handling quite a bit just because not having the leg there has made it easier to just like handle the bike a little bit more efficiently. And yeah, I actually haven't seen much of a a power discrepancy. I think when I first moved over towards single leg cycling, my power took a hit, but you know, after a few months of just retraining the muscles in my sound leg and, and getting that really smooth pedal stroke down better, mm. my, my power is, be, became back to where it was. So, um, right. yeah, overall it, it kind of works. <laughs> awesome. And so do you think if the courses, right, so in a power triathlon, you tend not to have really hilly mm-hmm. courses. Is, am I correct in, in saying that? They tend to be a little flatter. Do you think a really hilly course would make a difference with that? Yeah. So actually, thank you for saying that because that's another thing I forgot to mention. This is actually a huge a- advantage to the Stump Cup is that it enables you to get out of the saddle. Ah, and yep. on a, a short or like on a punchy hill that's kind of essential so yeah yeah, before when I was riding with the prosthetic and I would get to like a really steep hill you know there's kind of only so much that I could do and now I can attack you could just change you could just change down gears and that was about it you couldn't actually get out of the saddle and drive exactly exactly yeah um yeah so and yeah our you know back in the day we had all of our courses were pretty flat but in the last few years we started to see some uh some hillier courses enter the circuit Mm -hmm. which you know i love climbing especially now that i can get out of the saddle Um, Mm. and so that's been kind of fun to fun to see cool and what about your running leg? I believe you've changed your running leg prosthesis as well. Yeah. So you've had some pretty major changes in terms of both bike and run between Rio and Tokyo. So can you talk us through that change? Yeah, yeah. I was a completely different athlete between Rio and Tokyo in terms of setup. Because, yeah, so when I started running, I began on a, a running prosthetic that does not have a knee joint. And so I would basically just have to circumduct, swing it to the side in order to clear it. And so, you know, my gait definitely wasn't pretty. It looked a little funky, but I had made it incredibly economical in part because Mm -hmm. I spent, you know, eight years doing it. But there again, like there were a lot of kind of counterintuitive advantages that came with that setup. It was extremely lightweight. I yep. think my running leg with 
out a knee joint weighed three pounds, less than three pounds, whereas wow. now I'm, I'm yep. closer to seven. And yeah, that running that knee that knee joint is a is a you know it's mechanically quite complex and so with that becomes a you know it's a fairly heavy weight isn't it exactly yes it's it's very heavy and especially for someone like me who's you know five foot three (laughs) you know i that extra weight like really made makes a big difference proportionally large yeah yeah so you know on my my prosthetic without the knee joint because it was so light i could just turn that thing around so quickly. I had a really high cadence. My stride length was a little bit shorter, but, you know, I could still run really well just because I was able to achieve such a high turnover. Yep. So yeah, it worked really well for me. I had no intentions to ever change it. You know, even after kind of going through that process with the bike and seeing how much it it paid off, I was still very resistant to the running because uh, I was running really well. And I, you know, I I, I didn't see the need to change. But then, you know, a few years went by and, you know, I started to mature as an athlete and started to take much more, a much more objective approach to everything that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was starting to see that, you know, I was coming in second or third at every race and it was always Mm -hmm. coming down to the run. And so even though I was running well, I still had a lot of room to improve in that area. And if Mm -hmm. I wanted to really, you know, get to the top step of the podium, I was going to need to do something different. And it was likely Mm -hmm. going to need to come from the run. So yeah, yeah, that was kind of what drove me to start looking into running with a knee joint. This was like at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had a pretty basic setup made uh, with, with a knee and ran on it for, I think like three months, which, mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of downplaying it right now, but those three months were so challenging, you know, after. Oh, it's spending... a completely different running. Yeah. It's a completely different running technique, isn't oh, it? Com- like you're having to use your, your glutes and, and all of your muscles in a completely different way. Yeah. And, you know, the loading on your leg, and on on the stump and and on your hips is completely different. Yes, completely. It was truly like relearning how to how to run. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had a lot of sort of habits just from the old way that I ran that I carried over into the new way and so I had to unlearn all of those things. Um mm. yeah, it was very much a process. Actually, I think I ne- had to spend the first month or so on the Alter G removing like some of my body weight just so that I could get the the patterns down yeah and yeah the old the alter I'm just going to stop you the alter g being a specific treadmill that allows you like it carries some of your weight so that you're not fully loading so it's a very specialized treadmill yes yes yeah because yeah that was another big thing was just like learning how to trust the knee you know i fell so many times when I was starting um, that until I had that kind of like neuromuscular pattern down, I wasn't super comfortable just, you know, running outside with it. So yeah, after spending a couple months on that, I 
I knew I needed to make a decision about what I was going to do because at this point I'm about mm. nine months out from Tokyo back when we thought that Tokyo was going to happen in 2020. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I didn't want the decision to be an emotional one. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted it to be very data driven. And so yeah. I got into the lab at the Olympic and Paralympic training center and did some lactate testing on both setups, both the knee and the no knee. Mm -hmm. And it was actually really interesting going through that process because we found that the two were pretty similar. You know, I think that mm. everyone was expecting the knee to be so much more efficient. Hugely different. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Because just looking at me running with the knee, like my gait looks so much better. Mm. But you know, I think there's something to be said for all the years that I had spent on on the mm. other setup. Uh, definitely something to be said for the weight of it. So, you know, we didn't see a huge difference in in my lactate levels, in my running economy between the two. However, we did see that the knee was slightly more economical, more efficient. And at this level in sport, like all I need is slight, you know, all I need is, yeah. is the smallest margin that I can get a little bit of a gain. And so, you know, even though it wasn't the giant number that anyone was expecting, it was enough for me to say, all right, let's, let's go this route. So I yep. fully committed to, to the knee and, you know, it's, it's definitely continued to be uh, a process I think adding the layer of the knee in there, it just creates so much more nuance in the setup. And if you change like one mm. little thing in the knee, it's going to alter, you know, everything else along the chain. And so yeah. getting it dialed in perfectly is just a really long and tedious endeavor. Were you glad you had the extra 12 months in the end for oh, Tokyo? I'm so glad. I honestly, looking back, I'm like, I don't know what I would have done. Because, yeah, in, in August of 2020, I was nowhere near ready. <laughs> so, yes, I was very grateful for the extra year. But even still, like, I kind of continued tinkering for many months. And then I just got to a point where I was like, okay, like, I need to – I need to be done. I need to just focus on training, on building fitness. And, you know, this isn't perfect, but it's it's close enough. And so this is something I can work with. Yeah. So that got me through Tokyo. And now that, you know, we are in a new shortened quad, have a little bit more time to play around. I'm actually kind of back into optimization mode, just getting mm -hmm. that setup dialed in perfectly with the goal being that I can get that all figured out by the end of this year so that, you know, beginning in 23, I can just, you know, mm -hmm. have full confidence in, in the biomechanical aspect of things. And I can really just focus on the actual training. Goodness. Yeah. And the technology in prosthetics has changed enormously over since you first started having a prosthetic limb at age yeah. 14. How much has it changed in terms of the technology that's available in terms of prosthetics? Yeah. You know, I think from on my walking leg, I actually came in. My very first prosthesis was, you know, one of these smart legs that. Um, All right. 
you know, still still around today, but it was like the very first generation of it. I'm now mm-hmm. several generations later, and mm. yeah, it, it it certainly improved just just in the little the little things of like hiking downhill. Uh, I noticed that you know the knee is just much more dynamic than it used to be. Mm-hmm. I think that the market for running blades, running feet has really expanded and they're just making a lot more different shapes. A lot more brands have gotten on board to like bring their own stuff Mm -hmm. to the table. And so I feel like there's just a lot more options now than there were when we started, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. Mm -hmm. It can also be really overwhelming trying to figure out like what is going to be best, especially as you're changing (laughs) setups. So Yeah. And so do you have someone like other than your prosthetist, do you have a mentor or someone that you can talk to about those sorts of things? Or are you pretty much reliant on your prosthetist to be up to date with all of that? all of that technology. Yeah, a lot of it does come from the prosthetist. I feel like there's just a lot of natural, you know, support that comes just from the team and from other Paralympic athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, you see someone else yep. is using something different and, you know, you talk about it. And so there's so much information exchange that just happens organically. And so I feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm actually always going to my process being like, hey, this person's using this. Like, is this any good? Like, can I try it? (laughs) (laughs) And so you said that the new running leg, it created a little bit better efficiency running economy. And so from an energy expenditure perspective, how much did that change your energy requirements? I mean, it's obviously hard to measure, but do you feel as though it made your energy requirements change substantially or do you feel as though you're still eating mm. roughly the same amount of calories yeah. to to maintain body weight? Yeah, that's a good question because it is it's very hard to quantify. And, you know, it's tough too because there's a lot of other variables at play. For mm. a long time, I, as I was making this transition, my running volume simply had to decrease by a lot. Um, And so, you know, yeah, even though it was like a little bit more efficient, I was just running so much less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's, 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 it's hard to say for sure if it has like significantly changed the energy requirements, just because I think my body has also changed so much like in the last few years and like Mm. I, I've put on a lot more muscle mass. And so like my, daily requirements have changed just due to that so Mm -hmm. yeah it's hard it's hard to say okay and so can you talk us through a typical training week now um now that you've got that dialed in what what would that you know bearing in mind at the moment you've got i think seven weeks or eight weeks until world championships so obviously we're still in competition mode so give us a rough idea of what a typical training looks like for you so yeah right now again we're we're in the thick of it and i'm averaging like 20 to 25 hours a week and so i'm typically swimming six days a week riding six days a week running four to five and then lifting three Mm -hmm. so Typically, I will have two key sessions um, where the intensity is high and we're really getting after it across each of the disciplines. So like two key swims, two key runs. And then the rest of the sessions will be either uh, low to moderate intensity or just long distance, getting the volume in. 
And then, yeah, I'm a, I'm a really big proponent of, of lifting and strength training. At this point in the season, we typically go down to two days a week, but I have just learned over all my years of competing that I really need to keep that third day in to just feel strong. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, um, that's kind of my, my third component, my fourth component. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how do you eat to support that? So, you know, give us a like run through what maybe a typical day might look like in terms of how you fit your food in and around um, your training. Yeah. So it's funny that we're talking about this because I'm kind of at the beginning of a new block where the intensity is really picked Mm -hmm. up. And so I'll I'll talk about my Tuesdays because Tuesdays are kind of a key day where I have a long, hard run in the morning and Mm -hmm. then like a two-hour break before going into a hard, also fairly high-volume swim. And then in the afternoon, I have Mm -hmm. a lift. So... You know, I, the first day that I kind of had this on my schedule, you know, I fueled the way that I normally fuel in a day and I felt terrible. I had no energy. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, Tuesdays are the worst. How am I ever going to get through the next eight weeks? But then the following Tuesday, I like actually, I, I wrote down like what I had eaten the day before and I realized that I was lowballing my morning carbohydrates by about 30 grams. And so, yeah, uh, you know, I think I, I upped that from 40 to 40 grams to 70 grams of, of carbs Mm -hmm. going into my first session being the run. And so, yeah, I am typically just like a, a granola or cereal person in the morning. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on those heavy training days where I know that I have, you know, a lot of volume and a lot of intensity and I really need to front load the days, I'll add in mm-hmm. like a banana or some sport drink just to get that mm-hmm. extra carbohydrate in me. So yep. yeah, I, I did that this week and wow, what a difference that made. <laughs> I could actually function the rest mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> and yeah. the next day. <laughs> so and then my run itself, it was like a 10 mile run. And so I had some, some sport drink during that. And mm-hmm. it basically, as soon as that was done, I forced down some food because I know that I have to go <laughs> go at it again in a couple hours. So I've learned that like a smoothie or just like some yogurt and fruit works works pretty well for me to yeah, both replenish mm-hmm. and get ready for the next one. So I did that before my swim. Had some more sport drink during the swim because it ended up being like an hour and a half long session. Mm-hmm. And then you know, for lunch, I, I typically eat at the training center just because I'm, I'm there Mm -hmm. most days. And, you know, Mm -hmm. why make a lunch when they have incredible food out there for you? (laughs) So, you know, it's so easy to just eat really nutritious, nutritiously and diversely at the training center because um, there's, yeah, there's always like so many options to choose from. If it were up to me, I would probably just eat like broccoli and chicken and sweet potatoes every day. But there I have like (laughs) many different vegetables to choose from. But yeah, I keep it pretty simple. And like, 
you know, I like my vegetables. I have my source of carbohydrates and my source of protein <laughs> and just kind of being mindful of, of what I've done that day, what my carbohydrates, what my carbohydrate needs are on that day and feeling accordingly. Because, <laughs> you know, for me, I'm not someone who just like craves carbs. Like if I were le left up to my own devices, I would probably not eat nearly enough carbs and get most of my mm -hmm. calories from protein and fat. But given the sport that yeah. I do and the energy demands that I have, I have to be like very, very cognizant of the number of carbs that I'm taking in. So again, in these heavy mm -hmm. training periods, I feel like that's just a really big area of focus for me. It helps for me to yeah. like actually write down the the values, the macro values that I'm getting what to hold eating. me accountable yeah. because otherwise I'm probably not going to hit it. Yeah. Mm. And so then, so you have a big, like a main meal, mm -hmm. a hot meal for lunch usually. And then the the lifting session is what, two or three hours uh, later? Yeah, that'll be about, about three hours later. And that's about an hour and a half mm -hmm. long, wrapping up around 4.30. And so I, I usually yeah. end up having like, either a sports med appointment or a phone call right after that. And so I'll bring a little mm -hmm. bit of protein with me just to replenish after, after the lift and mm -hmm. get me through to dinner time. And then, yep. yeah, my dinner is usually like very similar to, to lunch. Uh -huh. Yep. Cool. And in terms of, you know, nutrition challenges, have you had, over this time, any major nutrition challenges other than obviously you, you're not someone who craves carbs or, or is really like you have to be very cognizant of how much carbohydrate you eat. Have you had any other nutrition challenges over the time? Yeah. You know, I think that's one of the biggest ones for sure was just <laughs> kind of like, yeah, learning how to embrace carbs and kind of reframe my mindset around that. You know, it, it's so funny yeah. because as an endurance athlete, like the optimal diet is so different from the optimal diet that the mainstream tells you you should be eating, you know? Mm, and so yeah. it, it's just required a lot of like work to kind of like reframe my mindset around that. Yeah. But mm -hmm. yeah, I went through a period of time in the build up to Tokyo, it actually kind of happened mostly around COVID where I really just prioritized leaning out. And, you know, it was something that I just never put a ton of emphasis on achieving, on figuring out what my optimal racing weight was. And then, yeah. you know, when I had the extra year with everything going on in COVID and like, we weren't even entirely sure how to train because we didn't know what we were training for. I kind of figured, you know, this is a good yep. time to really just prioritize nutrition and figure out what my optimal racing weight is going to be. And so I worked very closely with my dietitian and the whole support staff to, to be really intelligent about that process. And mm -hmm. yeah, I ended up changing my body composition pretty significantly. However, mm. one of the big challenges that came with that was that my prosthetics no longer fit. And so I mm. needed to have, you know, all of these new legs made. And so, mm. you know, I kind of waited to the point where like my leg was literally coming off and I was doing reverse hypers in the gym and I was like, well, this isn't going to work anymore. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> I'm going to cause yeah, myself exactly, an injury soon. Exactly. But then even oh. after that occurred, uh, you know, I had to go through, I think, another one or two iterations of it. And then, you know, I think I ended up having a prosthetic made when I was at my very leanest right before Tokyo. And then a few months mm-hmm. after Tokyo, when, you know, I kind of got off the super strict wagon and was just having a little bit more fun, all of a sudden my leg was too tight. <laughs> and so it is kind of this constant battle. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it it's something that like, again, I just have to be intelligent about, you know, I think normally manipulating body composition, you know, I, obviously, like there is risk involved. But you know, it's, it's something that you're able to do a little bit easier. But with the prosthetic component involved, you do just have to be a little bit more yeah. mindful and intentional about like when you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it needs to be planned rather than kind of accidental. And and as you say, in this current block of training, your focus is probably not on body manipulating your body composition. It's really about surviving the training load and, and making full use of that training load and fueling that training Correct. effectively. Yes. So I guess the question is, when you leaned out, did you feel as though that was did have you found your ideal race weight? Uh I mean I think I have. It is something that I want to kind of continue to dial in a little bit more. You know, I think that's like part of being an athlete. Like <laughs> mm. you can you can get to a really good spot, but then I think you're always wondering like, but could it have been better? You know? Is there anything different? And so, yeah, you yeah. know, I think going into yeah. Tokyo, like I got to a point where things were really good. I was performing well and we didn't want to take any more risk. Uh, I think there was too much going well to yeah. to push the envelope any further. And so, you know, we we backed off. I maybe could have gone a little bit further, but at the time it just didn't feel like a risk that was worth taking. Yeah. Did you feel as though it changed your swimming in any way by being a little um, bit leaner? I don't know. Like my swimming certainly improved. I don't know if it was just be if it was from the body composition or just from, mm-hmm. you know, everything else. I I noticed it yeah. a lot on the bike. My power to weight ratio went up significantly. So especially like on climbs, I became a very strong climber, mm-hmm. which was not something that I could have mm-hmm. said before. And, you know, I think in general, I think it allowed me to function better in heat. You know, I think that like prior uh, to yep. that process of leaning out, like I really, really struggled in the heat. And then I kind of got to a point where, you know, that was almost an advantage for me. Mm, okay. And the process that you went through to lean out, how much did you have have to adjust your calories by roughly? Like, was it a substantial amount or was it just a small yeah, percentage that um, you adjusted? It was pretty not substantial. We, I, I worked with Sally Bauman on this and, you know, we did know that mm-hmm. we had a pretty long period of time to work with and you know, she and my coach were both very adamant that we protect the training that I was doing. And so I was only going for like a couple hundred calorie deficit every day. And Mm. it took about a year. And that was, 
that was the goal. Uh, the goal was it mm. for it to be a very, very yep. slow, long process. Um, and so it was cool because I actually never yep. really felt like I was depriving myself. I never felt like my training suffered because of it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to be so intelligent about it and that everyone on my support team was, was involved in the process and, you know, was making sure that like my performance was paramount. And I wish so many more athletes would take that approach (laughs) because usually when people, when athletes go, I'm going to lose weight, they, they lose it too quickly. They cut back by too much then, and they compromise their training and their also their immune system and their health and obviously that was at a period of time when COVID was rampant and you know health and well-being mm-hmm. can can suffer quite substantially and so you know if you can protect the number of training days and the effectiveness of each of those training sessions then you've got a win-win sort of scenario so yeah it sounds like you've Thank done you. a great job with that. Yeah. So do you have any specific recommendations for for athletes you know someone who's starting Mm. to get into paratriathlon or maybe still hasn't found their sport any recommendations that you'd have for para para athletes yeah um you know i think the most important thing is just finding your community you know i especially if you haven't gotten into sport if you haven't figured out you know the one that really clicks for you just getting involved in adaptive sports at the local level finding a club near you that you know has a bunch of different sports that you can try but that more importantly has a community of people because so much learning does happen just through talking with other other athletes and and seeing mm. people who look like you doing things that you might not have known were possible. And, Mm. you know, I think that that goes for, you know, athletes with, with more experience as well, you know, finding people to train with groups to, to do activities with. I think that's kind of, well, I'm a very, very social person, but to, for me Mm. personally, like that's been the key to my longevity in this sport. There's no way that I would still be doing this if I didn't have a group of people that I was working out with every single day who motivate me on the hard days and who I can kind of pick up when they're feeling down. I think it just provides Mm. a a level of purpose and a sense of, of meaning that, you know, Sometimes pursuing sport can feel really selfish, but I think when you have a team of people around you and you're mm. a part of something bigger than yourself, it, it feels much bigger. Yeah, awesome. And what about any recommendations for practitioners like sports dietitians or physiotherapists or you know coaches, for example? Any recommendations that you have for them in, in work if they're sort of less experienced with working with parents? Yeah. You know, I think maybe just like having some, uh, having a little bit of humility and being willing to really just learn from the athletes because the para experience is a really different one. And I think that athletes know their bodies really, really well. And there's a lot that can be learned from, you know, just listening to the athlete and listening to their life experience. And, you know, I think there's, there's a balance there because I think sometimes, you know, we athletes can have, be convinced that there's certain things that like we just can't do and it takes an outside perspective Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of a fresh perspective 
for us to realize like, oh, we actually can do things a little differently. And so I guess mm. like going into yep. work with a para-athlete with a really collaborative approach, you know, of like, yeah. yeah, knowing that you have a lot to learn from the athlete, but, you know, also being willing to maybe push them a little bit and challenge their own expectations of themselves when appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I find interesting with, with your journey is that those changes in your prosthetic mm-hmm. limbs, like a, the logical brain kind of goes, oh, surely that must be better. Like because mm-hmm. you're particularly with your running leg, the, 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 the mm-hmm. just watching you run, it looked and I hate to say mm-hmm. this, it looked more normal when you had the knee in, and it looked painful when you had your original limb. And I think the expectation is uh-huh. that the change is going to be drastic. But the reality was that mm-hmm. the change was very subtle and it took a long time to learn and and to retrain all of the muscles. And so there mm-hmm. needs to be enough time. And, and enough enough mental space for you to be able to do that in a really safe, comfortable sort of environment. Absolutely, would you say? absolutely. And I actually I love what you said about the mental space because I think that's almost even more important. That process was so mm. mentally draining and emotionally taxing. And so, yeah, yeah, I think making a transition that big, yeah, you have to have both. Yeah, the the physical and the emotional bandwidth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, fantastic! You've done such a you've you've had such an incredible journey mm-hmm. journey, and it's still continuing. I mean, we've still got world championships coming up, and and obviously the target is Paris mm-hmm. in in a couple more years. So I'm really excited to see for you where where that heads to, and I'm really appreciative of the fact that you've been willing to share your story with us. But we're never going to let you go without to asking you what your favorite food is. Oh, man, my favorite food. Okay. Well, so in general, I feel like I gravitate towards Asian cuisine. So, like, sushi's definitely up there for me. Or any kind of, like, yeah, curry or a noodle bowl. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so you didn't get to explore that perhaps as much as you would have wanted to in Tokyo, unfortunately. No, I know. <laughs> we did order sushi one night. We Uber Eats. Uh huh. Eats. I don't know the past tense of that, but yeah, we brought in Uber Eats of a bunch of sushi, and it was epic. Oh, <laughs> fantastic! Well, Haley, I wish you all the very best for your ongoing journey, and yeah, super excited to sort of see how it evolves moving forward. And well done to you for having the patience and the fortitude to experiment. Oh gosh, thank you so much. Really enjoy talking to you. Oh, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you. I think Haley's a great example of an athlete who is a student of her sport and has had to take some time to get to a point where she's been willing to look at making some changes to improve her ability to perform and also reduce her risk of injury and has done so in a really planned manner with a lot of feedback and a lot of people involved. And so the decisions that have been made have been um, with a lot of uh, 
objective information rather than it just being subjective. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website and please feel free to share with your friends and family. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Bobby Kelly, who is a guide for Mel Perrine, who is a vision impaired athlete who we interviewed a couple of episodes ago.